Good evening, this is Quintus Curtius, and welcome back to the podcast. And the subject of our podcast tonight is going to be the qualities needed for survival in extreme situations. And I know that's kind of a broad subject, because there's many qualities that are needed for survival in extreme situations, but I wanted to talk about some that I was recently reminded of. I wrote an article a couple of days ago, which was published on my blog, about the greatest Brazilian explorer, and his name was uh, Candido Randon. And he was sent, as I describe in the article, all over Brazil to lay telegraph poles and cables to wire the different parts of the country together. And as part of this job, he had to undertake incredible dangers and assume incredible dangers, traveling into the heart of the Amazon, places, regions with fearsome tribes that had never been encountered before. And there were many examples of situations where he came under attack by Indians who would just let loose on him with arrows, darts, things like that. And there was even a situation where he was hit with an arrow, a couple times actually, not just once, but several times he was hit with arrows and darts. And he would just turn around and walk away and go back to his camp. And he would be afraid that he might die of poisoning uh, for a while. The Amazonian Indians were famous for poisons. Um, But eventually he would always recover. And you have to ask yourself, how, how does a man endure in those conditions, what drives a man to take on those types of missions, those jobs of great isolation, great danger, and with very little rest or sleep or pay? And so I had an opportunity to think about that a lot more, and I was able to relate that to some uh, books that I had read about the survival of combat soldiers in the First World War. And I thought it was interesting to draw a comparison between Rondon and them. I think with Rondon's example, with his situation, it was a lot of things. I think he had uh, a very, very difficult life. He was a man who was very austere, used to conditions of extreme hardship, and this was able to condition his body and his mind to tolerate the worst conditions imaginable. But he also had a, a, a personal philosophy, and I mentioned a little bit about that in the article. He was a believer in the French school of positivism, positivismo, as they say in Portuguese. And uh, the basics of this philosophy was that information gained through the senses, you know, sight, sound, hearing, touch, things like that, are the only real, reliable source of information that we can process, and that information gained by theological or metaphysical means is not as valid. But positivism's ethical construct was maybe more important for him, because he believed in complete nonviolence, complete nonviolence, which for a colonel in an army is kind of an incredible thing. But as I explained in the article, he believed that one should never retaliate against the Indians, even if they, one came under attack. He would, he would have preferred to have died than to have committed any sort of violence 
or retribution or even self-defense against the Indians. Now, I don't necessarily believe in that philosophy. I don't think that that's anything that I would be able to buy into. I think certainly every person has a right to self-defense, but he he didn't think so. And, and who am I to judge? <laughs> Apparently it worked for him. It somehow worked and enabled him to survive to the age of 92. So there must have been some some hidden wisdom in it that I'm presently incapable of understanding. But in any case, I think a combination of his personal philosophy, his withdrawn nature, his reticent, mystical nature, and his tough background were the things that enabled him to survive in extreme conditions. But again, this is a subject I've always been interested in. In my books, I've tried to explore what are the reasons why men are able to survive extreme adversity and and what qualities and what traits can help them do that. But reading about Rondon uh, reminded me of another book I had read. It's called Death's Men. It's by a a British writer, uh, Dennis Winter. A very good book. And basically this book is about the First World War, about combat soldiers in the First World War and the conditions that they lived under and what qualities enabled them to survive the conflict. So I thought it was interesting to compare some of these things and to talk about them to see what we can learn. Because it's true, not all of us or none of us are ever going to be in trench warfare, but we are all going to be subject to extreme stresses in extreme adverse environments. And to me, I think it's helpful to know how other uh, how other men were able to tolerate and endure in extreme environments. Because if you know how other people handled themselves, it can serve as a guide for ourselves and enable us to withdraw, to draw some lessons from that. So let's talk a little bit about death's men and what were some of the traits personal traits and leadership traits that enabled men to survive in the extreme conditions of trench warfare in the First World War. I think the first one we'll talk about here is, well, what he talks about is uh, friends, the experience of having friends. Friends or the, the having of companionship is one of the chief defenses against fear and against stress. So it's something we should be mindful of and something we should really uh, draw our own conclusions from. He says, the author says, the chief prop was mates. He says, there is no answer to fear. There was no answer to fear. It shakes the foundations of the mind. Physical contact is the one thing that helps. Proximity allowed the dispersal of free-floating fear in conversation, while songs expressed indirectly all the shared fears. So this is a, a, a great point. The first thing that he points out is, is companionship and having friends. If, you're, if you are subject to extreme stress, if you are in an extreme situation of hardship, you need to have people to talk to. You need to have human contact of one sort or another. You can't go through it alone because being alone magnifies the fears. The mind starts to play tricks on you, starts to exaggerate and feed on itself until 
all you can see is the darkness and you forget all of the uh, the good things. And then uh, the author says responsibility was the second thing. He says, responsibility provided another prop. If a man felt the need to uphold the reputation of a crack regiment, had a special job to do like running a message or being the senior soldier of a section, then he would go on longer. The officer in particular, looking after the comfort of his men, strolling around the trenches rather than stuck on sentry, spreading a feeling of purpose, was kept going by the awareness that in a tight corner, men looked to the officer for guidance and example. One officer remarked how much easier it was to lead his men into battle, since custom laid down the rule. How lost he was when alone and wounded in a shell hole, reading his own pocket edition, his own pocket edition of Aeschylus. At the end of the day, officers were just as likely. Were, at the end of the day, officers were just half as likely to break down as their men. So the point there is that responsibility can be another fortifying factor against breakdown in extreme survival situations. The first we talked about was companionship or mates. The second is responsibility. I think we can also call that a sense of purpose. We need to have a strong sense of purpose. We need to have a reason to get up in the morning. We need to have a reason that animates us. We need to have a life's mission. We need something that provides that fire in the belly. We need to have that mission, that internal compass. Because without that, people will slowly and surely decay and their minds will go to pieces. You know, and one of the most interesting parts of uh, Dennis Winter's book here, Death's Men, Soldiers of the Great War, is he t- when he talks about some of the personal characteristics of the men who experienced shell shock or combat fatigue or mental breakdown. And then he talks about some of the traits that were better equipped to survive those extreme conditions. And interestingly enough, it's not what you think. The, the, the men that seem to hold up the best, it's not what you think. It, it isn't like the comic books or movies where it's the guy with the biggest bravado, the biggest bragging uh, mentality, the biggest mouth, the biggest posturer. It was usually the quiet, reticent, sensitive, loner types. Those seem to be the ones who were best able to handle the stress of combat and the stress of extreme situations. And, and this is something that matches my own experience. I was never in combat, but I was in the military for a long time, and I was in situations where, uh, you, know, you know, training scenarios and deployment scenarios where there was a lot of stress. And you could see very quickly who was able to hold that better than others and who you would want with you in a real tense situation and who you would not want with you. And everything this author says is what matched my own experiences, and I I find that pretty interesting. You know, he basically says, highly neurotic men, highly neurotic men seemed seemed to have survived best and even gone on fighting to the end. Failure to adapt to a changing environment could be beneficial in war as it had been a handicap in civilian life. In an environment where danger was so constant that it could not be predicted and where no regular pattern of behavior fitted, those who responded in only a limited or maladaptive way to the present were fortunate. So 
Stated another way, we could say that being a little bit crazy actually helped. And it's funny, this is something that no one ever talks about. You won't find this in any book. You won't find this in any leadership manual. But it seems like the people that do best and prosper under extreme adversity are the ones who are a little bit off, are a little bit crazy, a little bit quirky, who simply have something different about their calibration where they can adapt and just tune out these extreme stresses and really just not think about them. You know, and it doesn't mean that maybe crazy is too strong of a word. I don't think that I don't literally mean crazy. There's nothing really crazy about such people. But they definitely are wired differently. They're just wired differently. And I think that's an advantage. I think you could also say that too about achievement in other areas, whether it's great achievement in music or art or literary or sports or whatever. You've got to be a little bit different from the others. You've got to be a little bit off. you just got to be a little bit different. You've got to be able to see the world in a different way and not be concerned about others' approval. And I like this comment about the, the neurotic uh, being best under extreme situations. They just, it's, it's almost like just this, this zone that comes over a person and they get in that zone and they're just in the moment and that's all that matters. The author Winter here goes on to say that better yet even than, than this trait were those men who were cold, aloof, unable to express hostility or fear, men noted as eccentric or secluded introverts in civilian life. Preoccupied with an inner reality, these men could not sustain personal relationships and tended to face all complex situations with a withdrawal response. The Cheyenne Indians had called them the contraries, and the Crow Indians called such people crazy dogs wishing to die. And there's a British general who noted with surprise how the most lasting and violent soldiers, as during the Boer War, as in the First World War, were in every instant the quiet, gentle, dreamy type. In other words, the men outside the group, detached, driven by an inner demon in a dangerous situation. And, you know, I found that to be a perfect description of the type of personality that is able to survive uh, an extreme environment. The guys who are just a little bit aloof, kind of gentle, quiet, withdrawn, detached, they're preoccupied by an inner reality. They create their own inner reality, and by doing that, they're able to fortify their minds against the tremendously adverse external reality that faces them every day. And I think this is instructive. I think this is a very important point. And what we can take away from this, what we can learn from it, is that we have to try to create our own inner reality in many ways as sort of a fortifying um, buttress against the the extreme the extreme conditions of the world for lack of a better uh, lack of a better analogy i don't think we can change our personalities we can't if we're uh, if a person is withdrawn quiet 
a gentle type of person. He can't change that personality. He can't change into someone else, and someone else can't change into him. But we can certainly adopt some facets of that personality. And I think by you know, developing our powers of concentration and developing sort of our inner mystic life, we can create that inner reality and sort of draw back on it in times of extreme stress and just keep on going. And we can just keep on going and be sustained by that internal compass of our own inner reality. And this, I think, is the lesson. This, I think, really is the lesson. Now, I want to make it clear, I'm not proposing these things as a substitute for all the other traits and principles that we need to have if we we want to be effective in adverse intense situations. You have to have all the tactical knowledge. You have to have all the uh, professionalism. You have to have all the leadership traits and principles. You have to have all that other stuff. I'm talking about in addition to that. I think it helps to be able to be the type of person who can just get in the zone, turn out, turn off that external reality that's unpleasant, and retreat into the inner reality. And by doing that, you will be able to find the strength and to find the conviction to keep on going in situations of extreme adversity, just like these soldiers in the trenches of the First World War were able to do. So think about that. I think it's something worth worth thinking about. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast. This is Quintus Curtius, and this was brought to you courtesy of Fortress of the Mind Productions. And until next time, I'm Quintus Curtius. Good night.